Hello and welcome to Franklin Covey's first episode of our newest podcast, C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. That is me. Many of you may know me as the host of Franklin Covey's leadership podcast on leadership with Scott Miller, now the world's largest weekly podcast dedicated to leadership. And over the course of the last 200 episodes of that podcast, occasionally we've had someone that has complimented our guest list that has come from the C-suite. And because we are a leadership development firm and focused on the role that leaders play in strategy, engagement, and culture, we've decided to actually have a new podcast you're watching and listening to now called C-Suite Conversations, where our first inaugural guest is David Neelyman, the business titan, founder, entrepreneur, and C-Suite leader, to talk to us today around all things around what is it like to be in the C-suite. David Neeleman, welcome to today's conversation. Thanks for having me, Scott. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you, man. David, we're delighted you chose to become our first interview because you're an icon, of course, in the aviation industry. Most people who've ever flown on a plane know who you are. Of course, if you're from Utah, you are you know, a hometown hero and success story as well, although you live different parts around the world. Let's talk, David, a little bit about what your backstory is. I think everyone is always interested in how someone achieves the level of success that you have. Of course, there have been setbacks. We'll discuss some of those as well. Would you take a few minutes and perhaps walk our listeners and viewers through your own journey that has culminated now in your most recent position? Sure. Um, I was, I was, my, my father uh, served a mission in, in Brazil and fell in love with the country and I decided to move there, and I had the good fortune of being born in Brazil and lived there until I was five years old. Uh, we moved to Utah, and you know, in like 1964, kind of had an undistinguished public school career, going through school. And you know, one of the things I didn't realize at the time, I, I wasn't a good student. I was very distractible. But you know, w one of the things that I learned uh, that I had ADD, and this was in my early er, early 30s. Um, you know, a good friend of mine, Ned Hallowell, who has written, has written Driven to Distraction, a lot of books on on attention deficit disorder. His, his latest book is called ADHD 2.0. And he says, you know, the prisons are full of people with ADD and so are boardrooms. So I was lucky to, to be the latter and and uh, obviously use that talent. And so, um, you know, went away for a couple of years, uh, you know, learned, learned Portuguese uh, on my own mission. And I uh, really had a growing up experience through that. I hadn't really distinguished anything in my life prior to to going away for a couple of years. But, you know, I also fell in love with Brazil and I always kind of wanted to do something uh, back there, which I, I did later. And I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But uh, so I came back and, and was at the University of Utah and ended up dropping out of college, starting a company. Uh, that company failed because the airline I was using failed and started Morris Air, which was a real successful airline uh, in Salt Lake City, kind of patterned after Southwest Airlines uh, with June Morris, who uh, is a great mentor and, and friend who recently passed away. I sold that to Southwest Airlines and South, it's, it's one of the only carriers that Southwest Airlines ever purchased. It was the first one that they ever purchased with the purpose of integrating. And then I had a five-year non-compete. So during that five-year non-compete time, I started a company uh, at the time it was called open skies today it's called navitair it's the world's largest airline reservation ticketing system uh with my co-founder david evans who's still the ceo there um and then uh went up to canada it was a i had a five-year non-compete with herb kelleher at southwest he wouldn't let me start another airline for five years 
which I knew wasn't enforceable, but I thought, what the heck? So I went up to Canada and started WestJet um, and had a great experience up there in Canada. It was the closest spot from Utah out of the country. Um, and then my five years was up. I, I raised uh, um, $135 million, the most money ever for a startup. Went to New York, founded JetBlue uh, with great success. And then at about seven, eight years into that, uh, you know, I had, there was a couple of events there and we could talk about that later, but um, some disappointments and, you know, our board, which, you know, I certainly uh, didn't agree with at the time, decided to just make me chairman and let someone uh, run the operation. And I didn't want to do that. I just love being involved in the operation. So I picked up and went back to the country of my birth and founded Azul. Azul's the largest and most important company, largest airline in Brazil, and probably the most important company founded in Brazil in the last 10 years, uh, serving 138 cities with 1,000 flights a day. So, um, And then just recently, uh, we founded uh, Breeze, uh, based in Salt Lake City. Finally came back here, and we're, we're flying to eight, 18 cities and 40 routes. Uh, and, you know, we get into that, uh, that business model. It's a little bit of a different model. So I, I've had a lot of success, but I've really, because, you know, the guy with ADD needs to surround himself with really good people. And I've been fortunate to have really the best teams in the world that have surrounded me and, and uh, have been the, the, really the biggest part of the success. David, thanks for opening with such vulnerability and transparency about uh, your strengths and perhaps areas of growth for you. Why such a passion on aviation? Your entire career almost professionally has been either in the airline business or in the airline support reservation business. Why such a passion for aviation? You know, I, I think, Scott, it was just something that uh, I'm an innovator. Uh, you know, I just look at the world a little bit differently, like most people with ADD do, the, the boardroom types. And, you know, I just thought it was an, an, an industry that really needed um, innovation. So you know, with our first ticketless, we were the first ticketless airline in the world at Morris Air, and that was the genesis of, of Navitaire, um, which is still based in Salt Lake, you know, really successful company. Um, it was a, it's a ticketless reservation system that, because we founded it, and that was the reason um, that company got started. So uh, it was just, you know, kiosk check-in, we were the first to ever do that. We were the first to do e-ticket travel. We were the first to put uh, live TV on airplanes. We were the first to to put people in their homes taking reservations um, from the airline. So, you know, I'm just an innovator at heart, and it was just an, an, an industry that was in serious need of innovation. David, you've served in the C-suite for many decades, both as the CEO of public and private companies. When you look at elevating someone from the perhaps senior level of the uh, leadership suite, what are the types of competencies you look for as you're sort of ju judiciously bringing someone into the executive level of any organization? You know, that's a really good question. And, you know, I, I think selecting the right team is so essential. And, you know, sometimes you don't get it right. You know, you know it's, you know, one of the toughest parts for me of building a really great company where people love it and they're passionate and they wake up excited and, and come to work every day that if you have someone who just has risen to the risen to their level of, of kind of of competency and and you know they're not able to go any any further, then you know kind of making a move there is really one of the most difficult things. So I'm not perfect at it, you know. And and I think too, great organizations make people better. You know, I can remember at, you know at JetBlue one time we hired somebody in in a position, 
And a friend of mine who had um, was running another airline that he came from called me up and said, are you nuts? Why did you hire that guy for? You should have called me to get a reference check. Well, he turned out to be really good. Uh, because he, you know, maybe wasn't in a, you know, the best organization and he came to a really good organization. And so, you know, that, that helps me, you know, cover maybe some of my mistakes in hiring that you can bring people in if you have a really good organization and you can make them better. So, you know, I, I think it's just leadership is, is something that you just, people want to follow you. They want, you know, they're inspired by your every word. They, you know, when you talk to them, they really want to, do it they they you know there's just a favorability score uh, of someone who's a leader and people you know and i'm really big in servant leadership obviously so somebody who you want to follow because you know you know they're a servant leader and that they communicate well they set their expectations well they focus on the most important things you know i think sometimes leaders get caught up in, in the minutia of all the stuff and you know they really have to ask themselves I got this min principle. I, you know, I didn't make it up, but somebody did, and I've always stuck with it. It's what's the most important now for our business, and so just finding people that can really identify that and, and focus on it, and lead people, and you know, be 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 good leaders, and 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 be um, you know not, not be hated, but be loved. You know, that's pretty simple, but you know, it's 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 really essential if you want to work for one of my companies. David, I think it's a common phrase to say the higher up you are on the letterhead, the ladder in an organization, the less aware you are of what's going on culturally with systems processes that, you know, it's, it's, it's rare to someone give feedback to the CEO on her or his personality traits or leadership style. There's some truth to that. As you look perhaps introspectively on your own self-awareness, what would you say are your key strengths and what are your areas of growth. What are your weaknesses? You mentioned your attention deficit, but what are you most proud of in terms of what you bring to the C-suite and, and, and what are your biggest deficiencies? You know, I, I think my, my biggest asset is, is um, as I just mentioned, you know, really figuring out what the critical issues are and addressing them quickly and not letting them slide and, you know, really focusing, you know, what is, what is, what are we supposed to be working on today? What, what's going to hamper our growth? What's going to hamper you know, our ability to, to, you know, to, to be successful. And so, you know, that's my, and, and the vision for the future and figuring out, you know, why everyone else is kind of trying to keep everything organized and straight and make sure we're hiring the right people and training them properly. And, and that there's enough staffing there and all those details that I'm not as good at, um, you know, it's those operational details. I'm, I, I'm good at it, but I would, I would rather have other people do that. It's not my favorite thing to do. And so, you know, I think just surrounding myself with people that compliment me. And also, you know, we have a pretty good culture of pushback, you know, and pushing back. If, if you don't necessarily agree with what somebody says, then you should speak up and you should explain why and use facts and data to back up your, um, you know, your your point of view. And so, you know, it's 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 but a very collegial um, at, um, at environment where people can, you know, talk to each other openly and frankly, and, and they can, you know, focus on those important issues that, that the company needs to, you know, to focus on to be successful. David, as you think about your colleagues in the C-suite, perhaps in other complementary or even competitive or non-related industries, what would you say are the most frustrating things that members of the C-suite wished 
their colleagues, employees, team members knew. When you're in the C-suite and you're wrestling with something, a frustration about the organization or the culture or results, what do you think are generally the issues the C-suite wishes the rest of the organization understood like they do? Well, I think if, if you know, if I, first of all, I think if that's, if that's it, an issue, then you're not communicating very well. Hmm. Um, you know, we, what we do at, at Breeze, we have what's called an all-hands meeting. Every single month, we have a live broadcast with members of our senior leadership team, and we talk through issues, we take questions, uh, you know, we talk about our challenges, we talk about our successes, uh, we talk about our failures, and we talk about how we can become better. And so, you know, I, I think, you know, having that communication is just so vital that people understand what the challenges are of the business. Otherwise, they're just left to think, you know, maybe these people don't know what they're talking about. So I think just being vulnerable and exactly, um, you know, being vulnerable and, and making sure that the people know exactly what the challenges are so we can all work together, I think it's just critically important. David, flip that question. What would you guess are the most common issues that members of the rank and file, which we've all been at some point in our career, wished the C-suite knew about or the C-suite would address? If you, as you think about the biggest issues throughout where the real work is done, what tends to not make it up to the C-suite's awareness level? Well, you know, we have a really open door policy and, you know, people can, can like I said, there's open door and, you know, we, it's a little bit harder what we have now with, we have our headquarters here in Salt Lake and all of our flights are kind of in the southeastern part of the United States and northeastern. But even with that, you know, I, I haven't been as, as good as I need to. We're only six months old and this is critically important. But, you know, at JetBlue and Azul, particularly at Azul, every single director that flies on any flight has to introduce themselves to the customers on the airplane and they have to talk to every single customer on the flight. They have to ask them, what are we doing great? What are we doing bad? What can we do better? And then they need to be in the field talking to people. And you know, I just think that's, they have to do it at least once a month, if not more. And so, I, you know, you're ear to the ground. And the other thing is a lot of companies don't do surveying of their people, you know, and we do that religiously. And, you know, we, we've been through a horrible pandemic at, at Azul uh, in Brazil. And Brazil, you know, took it pretty hard. Um, and, you know, bouncing back. But we just finished our, our crew member satisfaction survey down there. And we had the highest scores we've had in the history of our company in, in, in 13 years. So I think, you know, you have to, I've got this thing, um, this motto that I always say, trust, but verify. So people say, oh, no, people are happy. Now I want to verify. I want to, I want to go out there and talk to people myself. I want to go out and, you know, speak to people. And, and uh, you know, so you have to be able to have all kinds of measuring tools and you have to have feedback channels and you have to be able to survey people and you have to be able to take those results, you know, reflect them back to the team and say, look, these are the results that you've given us. And these are the actions that we're taking to address your concerns. So it's, it's a constant feedback loop that you have to do. And, you know, I, I hope that we know, you know, what our challenges are. And if not, it's really our, our incumbent on those that are, on the front line that are dealing with the customers to let us know because, you know, we have to set that environment of, a, of an open policy. What's it like to report to David Neeleman? Oh, I think it can be maddening at times. Um, 
you know, sometimes, um, you know, some things that seem obvious to me don't seem obvious to maybe everyone else in the room. And, and I'm wrong sometimes and I'm right a lot of the times. And I think, um, you know, sometimes it's, um, I think the, the most, the most frequent cr criticism that I've heard about working for me is it's not that simple. I mean, I, I tend to take very complex issues and I tend to distill them down to very simple solutions. And, you know, the answer I get back is it's not that simple. And I say, why not? Why can't we do that? Um, you know, we've, we've had an issue at Breeze where uh, we, there's this, we have a pilot crisis in the United States. During COVID, there were 5,800 pilots that retired early that were not of age to retire. And we're, we're already tight on pilots. So now there is a shortage. You can't really find pilots. The big guys are hiring. And, and there's also a simulator shortage because all of the regional carriers who fly similar airplanes that we do are having all their pilots stolen from the big guys and they're using all the sim time. So I said, okay, critical. We need to get a simulator in Salt Lake immediately. And they said, well, that takes a year. And I said, that can't take a year. And, you know, I went to our guy, our facilities guy, and he said, it's going to take me six months to get ready. And I said, if I told you you're, I was going to take away your firstborn son, <laughs> if you couldn't get it 60 days, would you get it done? He said, yes. I said, well, then get it done. So um, we were able to get a simulator out of Mexico City and move it up here. Arrived in Salt Lake Monday. Uh, the, the cement's being poured for the pads where it has to be. We found a warehouse, uh, converted to our sim center. Uh, it's, it's being installed starting the 3rd of January. It'll be ready to go February 1, uh, literally 60 days after we, you know, I, I hit the go button and we're only waiting for the FAA to come and certify it. So, you know, sometimes, you know, I have an urgency and some, and, and my team's like, that can't be done. And I say, explain to me why it can't be done. And, and I want to hear every detail. And so, uh, you know, we, we come to an agreement and sometimes I'm wrong and, and sometimes I'm right. So, you know, but, you know, it's critically important for the company. We have pilots. We can't fly airplanes. If we can't fly airplanes, we don't have a company. So, you know, those are things that uh, you, you deal with and you have to understand where the hot buttons are and you have to, you know, keep pushing them. And I get updates daily on, on that particular process because um, that's something I, I also on pilot hiring. I talk to our chief pilot, um, our, our head of operations, uh, flight ops, almost every day on, on the progress on that. So, you know, it's just um, sometimes it's, man, David's not realistic, but uh, we get it done. David, thank you for that. You mentioned earlier your ease for distraction. You called it AD, ADD. Ed Hollowell, by the way, is a good friend of Franklin Covey's. We've featured him in some of our time management offerings. Uh, what systems do you put in place in terms of how do you manage your time, how you set priorities? How, how would you describe the system you use to keep yourself focused and on task when you are easily distracted in the C-suite? Uh, it's just men, you know, most important now. I, I work on just the things that are critical and important. And I let all of the operations people deal with that. And you have to have a dashboard. You know, you have to know how long someone's waiting on hold, you know, because we want to run a flawless operation. That's that's our goal. We want to be perfect. We're never going to be perfect, but we strive for perfection. So you can't be perfect if people are waiting three or four hours on, on hold to talk to you. And so we knew we couldn't staff up enough people to be able to handle that and respond to our customers as quickly as we need to, especially with 
spiking events. So we went to a completely callless contact center. Uh, you can contact us many ways through Facebook, through text, through a lot of different ways. We have people, legions of people working in their homes, taking care of our customers. And uh, so, you know, that we've had over a million contacts. We've ended up having to call a couple hundred people, uh, but we've resolved all issues in less than 10 minutes. Um, you know, our, our average flight time um, is shorter than the average wait time on our competitors uh, call center lines. So it's just, you know, you know, figuring that out. And so I really focus on those issues. I have a dashboard. I know our on-time percentage. I know, you know, how long it takes to get our bags to the carousel. I know how long it takes us to respond to our customers. And so I'm, I'm just, you know, focusing on those areas that so we can run as flawless as an operation as possible. And that's um, really, I, I just, I just, I'm constantly focusing on the, on the most important thing and making sure that we course correct constantly to, to just be the best company we can. I keep an eye on the MPS, you know, our MPS scores have been through the roof. I mean, over 80, which is incredible. And I've never had an MPS scores as high as we have at Breeze. And, you know, it, it just, it goes into being flawless in everything that you do. David, what accomplishment are you most proud of professionally over the course of your, gosh, 30-plus year history now? Uh, you know, I think far and away, um, you know, JetBlue is a great company. I'm very proud of that company. You know, it was, it was my idea. You know, I founded it. I raised the money. Um, but I think Azul is, the, if, if there's one company that has changed uh, Brazil, uh, in a positive way. We, there were 47 million people who traveled domestically in Brazil uh, before we started. There's over 110 million that, uh, now. The majority of that increase are our customers. We fly to 138 cities. There are cities, 80% uh, of our routes, we have no nonstop competition. So we opened up a bunch of cities, the Amazon basin. Uh, we take medicine, we take vaccines, we take uh, organ transplants. Uh, there are some cities that you either have a five-day boat ride or you fly on a, on Azul. And so, you know, I, I'm so proud of that company. And the lives of the 20,000 people, direct people that work for us, and probably 100,000 people that indirectly work for us have, have been changed, uh, you know, in a way that um, is really difficult to quantify and would not have been the same, you know, say in the U.S. or anywhere else. So that, you know, it, it was under a very you know, difficult circumstances for me because, you know, I left my baby jet blue to do it, but you know, every black cloud has a silver lining and uh, you know, that company has, is, is tremendous. It's the largest airline, you know, in Brazil and Brazil is the fourth largest domestic market in the world. So uh, what we, our team's been able to accomplish there over uh, the last 12 years is, is just remarkable. We also have a logistics company that's like a FedEx or a UPS. We deliver to 4,800 zip codes every day. Wow. And uh, the operation where we fly the, you know, the cargo in our bellies and, and on our cargo airplanes. So it's, yeah, that, that thing's, it's a remarkable company. That's a great story. Uh, the, the reverse of that, if you had to look back and think, you're professionally, your biggest mistake, like something you got wrong, you were perhaps convinced this was the right strategy and the facts yielded, you know, different results, what would be your biggest, maybe not regret, but your biggest mistake? And what did you learn from that others could um, take insight from? Well, I th you know, I think, you know, at the time, and like I told you, you know, Azul can be came from it. But, you know, I was, um, 
my removal as the CEO of JetBlue was absolutely, it was devastating at the time. It didn't really make any sense. You know, it was uh, May, May of, of 2007 and I had the best reviews I've ever had from the board ever in January, uh, three months prior to that, four months prior to that. And so I didn't see it coming at all. And I guess, you know, I regret I should have been closer to the board. Um, you know, I was busy running the company and, you know, realized that didn't, didn't think that would ever happen. And I've never been in a position where the board could do that to me ever again in any of my companies. I've set them up completely differently from that. So I learned that it was, you know, a sad thing. And, you know, and I, I fly a lot on JetBlue. I'm very proud of it. Um, you know, I, I talked, uh, it's, it's interesting because when I speak to crew members, you know, flight attendants, I just came in on a flight on JetBlue and I'm going out on one tonight you know, they're like, oh, we miss you so much. It was like I left yesterday. You know, it's been literally 13 years since I've left. But but the crew members act like it was really yesterday. And, and uh, you know, it's 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 nice to hear. But, you know, I, I wish them all the success. And, and I love the company. I'm a shareholder. And um, I, I, I'm i really proud of it. Uh, David, last couple of questions. We'll let you go. We know you have to catch a JetBlue flight uh, and pray, pray pretty soon breeze once you expand. Um, as you think about your career journey and others who might want to follow a similar pattern as an entrepreneur, solopreneur, intrapreneur, moving up into the senior ranks of leadership, what are some of the things you've done well in your career that you think others could easily replicate? They don't require your intellect or your passion or your genius. What are some of the most replicable things you've done in your career that if others were to perhaps mirror or do more of, it would help their career as well? Well, you know, I think, first of all, you know, it, it depends if you want to work in a big company or if you want to be an entrepreneur and start your own company. And, you know, I I've, I teach courses at Stanford. I've taught courses at Harvard and with my Brighton High School, uh, high school diploma, because I never did graduate from the University of Utah. But, you know, I, I tell them, first of all, uh, you have to have passion for this and you have to have a love for it and i if you're an entrepreneur and you don't wake up every morning thinking about your business if you're not in the shower thinking about it nonstop, um then you're probably not an entrepreneur and you should probably go work for someone and that's okay because we need a lot of people working for companies if everybody started a company that wouldn't work either so you know you know i just think that you know larry larry h miller who you know started a bunch of dealerships and was the owner of the Utah jazz and has, has left us, you know, he used to say, if you want to be ahead of like 75% of the people just show up to work on time, sober with a good attitude. <laughs> you know, so, so it all starts with, you know, you have to be, um, um, you have to matter, you know, you have to be someone that is dependable, somebody that, that's likable, somebody that, that cares about other people, you know, it's, uh, you know, I was, I was talking to, you know, I gave a lecture one time and this guy came and told me the story about, you know, he, he went off to, to a well-known university and spent $15,000 over a weekend to learn how to be a better CEO. And he said, what I learned is that if my company doesn't matter to my customers and to my employees, it will, I will never be successful. And, you know, if your company shuts down, how are people going to feel about that company being gone? And so you, you have to create companies that matter. They want to tell me that how much JetBlue mattered to him because every weekend he, um, he, owned a, he owned a business in New York City and he would run out to JFK and hop on a flight to West Palm Beach, Florida and come back. And he said, You're, my life is so much better than because of you. Hmm. And if it wasn't, for, I would just be distraught. And you matter. 
and that's why you're successful. And so I think you have to matter to people. And I kind of took that one step further and said, you know, when you die, you're soon going to miss you. Do you matter to people? Because I think the more you matter, the more successful you are, but also, you know, the happier you are as well. Um, you know, I, I think it goes to your happiness and being mattering is just being a servant leader and, you know, kind of well, watching out for other people and, you know, helping others succeed. And if you, and, you know, being, you know, obviously being strategic and all that stuff, uh, you know, comes with it. And, and, and you have to think that way. But, you know, not being political, just being really a good person. And, you know, if you do that, you'll you'll do you'll do great. Thanks, David. To finish us off, pull the covers back a bit on the airline industry. As the founder and owner and CEO of different airlines, what do you wish passengers knew about the airline industry? We're in the middle of a pandemic. There's a new variant that's exploding. It's, you know, you see every day on the news issues with conflicts and respect for, you know, flight attendants and masking and no masking. And what, what do you wish the average, which I am, the average, you know, uh, airline customer knew about the industry? It is very complicated industry, so complicated. There's just so many moving parts. Uh, you know, there's weather delays, there's mechanical delays, there's crew delays that are getting sick. I'm, you know, with kind of COVID ripping, it's not a serious variant, but it's still, if people get sick and they test positive, they can't fly. And you've gone from kind of one Omicron case to 300,000 yesterday or some ridiculous number. So everyone's going to get this thing. And so, you know, it, it, it takes kind of a village to, to get a flight off. I mean, you have to have people, uh, dispatchers that prepare the flight plans. You have to have fuelers to fuel the airplane. You have to have, of course, pilots to fly them and flight attendants, a minimum number on board that you have to have. You have to have people to be able to, to load the baggage on the airplanes. Um, you, you know, you have to have air traffic controllers that are actually controlling the flights of you know, those those folks all go out, you know, for a few days with COVID. It shuts down the whole industry. So, you know, it is a, a very intricate and very complicated business. And so you just, you know, sometimes you just got to be patient. But I think the airlines can do a better job, too, of explaining um, a delay and ex explaining the challenges. Sometimes they don't want to own up to maybe if it's their own fault. But if you explain it, I think people... Um, you know, listen more and, and they're more calm than if you just keep them in the dark. So I think we can do a better job, but it is complicated. And I'm hoping that <laughs> Omicron is kind of God's gift to get us out of this thing, that it's a milder version and everyone's going to get it quickly and hopefully we'll be immune for it and we can kind of move on with our lives. That's what I'm hoping and praying for. So your focus now, of course, is Breeze. What's next for you? What's on the horizon for you, David? Uh, Breeze. <laughs> no, I'm still, still the chairman of Zool. We're very involved there. I talk to him every single day. I visit Brazil for board meetings, and I got a great team down there. They're, they're doing a great job. But, you know, between Azul and Breeze, um, that's really my focus and my family. Got a large family. Uh, lots of kids, lots of grandkids. Just had my 27th grandchild. Um, we, you know, ski a lot. We have a great time. Um, have a house that we can ski in and ski out of. So it's all about family and, and um, obviously balancing family with business is critically important. David, thanks for your time today. I know you're off to catch a jet across the country a couple times in the next few days. Appreciate you. Hope you're safe. 
May everybody at JetBlue and Azul and Breeze be healthy and make it through the holiday season. Thank you for agreeing to kick off the new C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller podcast for Franklin Covey. Look forward to collaborating with you in the future. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. And we'll see you back here next week for a new member from the C-Suite on Franklin Covey's newest podcast, C-Suite Conversations. <music>